I was a former SS202 American politics instructor. I thought, well, this is really interesting. Federal departments and agencies don't get formed every single day. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Soch Podcast. This is your producer, Major Haziano. For this episode, we bring you a conversation featuring the Honorable John Tien, who is currently the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. Deputy Secretary Tien graduated from West Point in 1987 as a Rhodes Scholar, after having been the first Asian American to serve as First Captain. He completed a 24-year career in the Army, which included multiple combat tours, serving as a White House Fellow, and being the U.S. National Security Council Senior Director for Afghanistan and Pakistan between 2009 and 2011. Upon retiring from the Army, Deputy Secretary Tian worked 10 years as a Managing Director for Citigroup before being appointed and confirmed in his current position as the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security in 2021. During his recent visit to West Point, Deputy Secretary Tien sat down with myself and Dr. Scott Limbacher, an assistant professor of American politics, to talk about the history of the Department of Homeland Security, his job managing a complex bureaucracy with a diverse mission set, and working in the interagency both as a DOD member as well as a DHS Deputy Secretary. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hey everyone, this is Major Haziano, and thanks for listening in on this episode of the Soch Podcast. I'm excited to welcome today's featured guest, uh, the current Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, the Honorable John Tian. Thanks for joining us today, sir. It's a real honor to be back at the United States Military Academy, uh, class of 1987, uh, and more importantly, a member of the uh, Soch faculty from 1996 to 1998 for everybody's favorite class, SS202 American Politics, just to make sure you knew. And go AP. We actually have another fellow American politics instructor with us today, another social faculty member, Assistant Professor Scott Limbacher. So glad to have you back on, on the podcast as well. Glad to be back. Thank you. So, uh, Deputy Secretary Tien, you've had a long, interesting career involving a wide variety of positions in numerous prominent organizations. When the Department of Homeland Security was first created, you were still an active duty member of the Army. At the time, what was your perception about the new cabinet department? So uh, this obviously was uh, post 9-11, and uh, 2002, 2003 was really the inception of the Department of Homeland Security. We're now about 18 years old. And I was a, uh, in 2002, 2003, I was in the middle of a four-year tour at the department uh, in the uh, Fort Irwin, California, with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment as an opposing force. I think I was the 111 Armor uh, XO and essentially that meant I was in the Krasnovian uh, opposition forces. And so it was pretty tactical, right? It was on the pointy edge of the spear, so to speak. I wasn't doing a joint job. I wasn't doing a policy job, but obviously massively impacted, just like all of us uh, who were alive when 9-11 happened 20 years ago, it affected our the American consciousness. It was literally in the zeitgeist of how we as Americans viewed ourselves in the world and clearly saw that there was a enemy that not only opposed us and opposed our way of life, but essentially hated us to our core. And so therefore, anything that was happening that happened post 9-11, that happened in terms of the, the actions that we were undertaking, securing our airports, 
made sense. I was a United States Army officer. We'll, we would follow our orders, and we had to execute our mission. So I was very focused on how do I help prepare the uh, forces of 2002, 3, 4, uh, for war in wherever that was going to be. It ended up being Fort Orion, California, prep folks to go to Afghanistan, prep uh, units, 3rd Infantry Division in particular, to go to Iraq, as it turns out. However, also, since that was your question, which was Department of Homeland Security gets formed. I was a former SS-202 American politics instructor. I thought, well, this is really interesting. Federal departments and agencies don't get formed every single day. So I thought, well, this is an interesting experiment. We'll have to see how this comes together. The theory of the case that if you were to bring together different organizations who had the common mission to secure our borders, right, and had any inputs really very upstream and just downstream from that mission— should be brought together because there is an opportunity for better integration, better coordination, and therefore better outcomes. That was the theory of the case. My first, I'll, I'll come to sort of my assessment at that time, right? Uh, my, my first interaction, though, interestingly, was with the Department of Homeland Security. In 2003, the country of Israel, the government, in particular the military of Israel, offered to us as they realized the United States of America was on the precipice of uh, likely a uh, invasion of Iraq uh, to deal with what we believe to be nuclear weapons that in, in the enemy, essentially of the United States of America, said, you're about to enter into a counterinsurgency. Let us teach you something about that. So they uh, asked the United States Army to lead uh, a tactical lessons learned delegation into Israel and understand counterinsurgency. And it was an interagency task force, as it turns out. I led the Army delegation. Why? Because at that point in time, I was on the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. We were training forces. I was about to transition into what was called the plan shop for the uh, observer controllers, the OCs, where the, where the National Training Center. So I did this. I show up in Israel, and the interagency turns out to be some folks from the Joint Staff, some folks from the State Department, but the lead agency actually was the Department of Homeland Security. It's only been around for a year. And I interacted with these, uh, they were both uh, men. And I said, you know, what's your background? One guy was former uh, CIA. One guy was uh, former military DOD civilian staff. And I said, what's, what's your, your mission here? Because you're Homeland Security, but we're about to go sort of fight the war forward. And what he said to me, and pretty perceptive for him at the time, is he said, look, what we need to do for the Department of Homeland Security, we can't and we don't want to defend on the border of Mexico. We can't and don't want to defend on the northern border of Canada. We don't want to have to only be defending at our, uh, he called it, you know, the airports, right? John F. Kennedy, LaGuardia, Atlanta, International, LAX. That's because if we do that, we are, we're just one step away from a, terror, from a terrorist entering into our country and doing harm, just as they did on post-9-11. So if we can have an understanding of how Israel pushed their borders out and talk about a country that is surrounded literally by their enemies, we want to take it from their lessons learned. You'll be tactical, we'll be border-focused, and we believe that we can accomplish that by pushing our borders out. Fast forward here 20 years later. I come into the Department of Homeland Security. I'm speaking to Customs and Border Protection, to our Immigration Customs Enforcement, to our U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, to our Secret Service, 
and our Coast Guard, and there's other organizations as well, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, actually led by a former SOCHP, uh, West Point uh, Road Scholar like me, Jen Easterly, first uh, Cybercom, uh, one of the first Cybercom Battalion commanders. And they say to me, one of the things that we're trying to continue to do here is to push our borders out, right, in all of these dis- different countries. And what I saw was over the course of the last 18 years, the Department of Homeland Security very successfully continuing to, I would say quantitatively, being in more countries with uh, folks like the Homeland Security Investigation, again, Secret Service, especially in terms of uh, dealing with financial crimes and uh, internet crimes as well, figuring out ways to push the border out. And so it was really good to, to see from, uh, from my perspective as someone who saw the Department of Homeland Security literally in its first year trying to achieve one of its core tactical missions to do what uh, our mission here is at Homeland Security, which is, with honor and integrity, we will safeguard the American people, our homeland, and our values. Sounds like interagency cooperation has been an important component of DHS from the get-go, and that, you know, it was a DOD member, you were able to kind of experience that right from the beginning. I mean, how does all this align with your kind of goals for the way forward for the department? It, well, there's really two, and look, there's we, the secretary and I, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he goes by Ali. Uh, he's actually the most experienced political appointee that the department has ever had in its 18 years. Because in the first term of the Obama administration, he was the U.S. CIS uh, head director. And then in the second term, he was held my job as the deputy secretary of Homeland Security. So by definition, the the most experienced uh, political appointee in the Department of Homeland Security. Great leader, great servant leader, great strategic visionary. And we have a lot of different goals for the department. As one of my specific goals sets, I would say, is being uh, falls into the chief operations officer realm, uh, the COO, because by statute, that's what all deputy secretaries. So you're from the Department of Defense. Uh, you fall under that purview. My counterpart there is a woman named Kath Hicks, uh, and she is the COO for the Department of Defense. And they've always run it that way. The head of transportation, Polly Trottenberg, she's the COO for the Department of Transportation. Big job, COO, two of them for at least for the Department of Homeland Security, the third biggest federal uh, agency or cabinet department in the United States government. Third biggest, 250,000 people, uh, $60 billion budget, operations across not just the uh, nation, not just in the continental United States and Hawaii and Alaska, the Arctic, Europe, Asia, certainly Latin America, huge undertaking. So that's a big question that you just asked me, which is, what are our goals, right? So there's some goals fall within COO, and some goals all actually are, which I w- would say are even more um, esoteric to some extent. And I'll get to the esoteric piece first. But when you think about the goals for somebody who does COO, immediate thing is you go to budget. Like, how do we, how are we effectively uh, and responsibly using the resources that the American people, the American taxpayer, Congress, the authorizers and the appropriators have given us in order to execute that mission with honor and integrity. We will safeguard the American people, our homeland and our values. You want to do it in the right way. So you want to use your budget in a more effective way. Uh, you also want to improve uh, the what I would call the manpower engagement uh, or how we use the resources in particular, uh, be it through improved morale, improved training, and also how we integrate data more effectively 
across because so much of what we do in the Department of Homeland Security, we want to leverage the efficiencies and the, and the opportunity of the fact that we have data on, on some people who mean to do us harm, right, that come in from so many different disparate organizations across the Homeland Security enterprise, as well as from the rest of the interagency. So that's certainly one of my goals is to make us a more effective uh, operating organizations in my statutory role as COO. The more esoteric one is to go back to something I said just about five minutes ago, is the department's only, and I put in air quotes here on the podcast, only 18 years old, right? And we are, by definition, the youngest department that sits at the cabinet level. 18 years is still a long time, right? But still, this is the department that needs to continue to evolve and find what I would call a sustainable, substantive application of the value proposition that it brings to the enterprise of Homeland Security. We can, like any organization, the Army's been around for a long time, West Point's been around since 1802. We should always be a good learning organization is an an evolving organization, has to be self-aware. And so as I look at one of the things I thought I could do here, you know, with uh, Secretary Mayorkas' full support is to find ways to create more sustainable uh, apparatuses for how we do our policy and how we integrate uh, with each other intra to DHS and even more so across the interagency. I think a great example of that was uh, what we just did with Operation Allies Refuge and Operation Allies Welcome. So Operation Allies Refuge was the air evacuation that played out on CNN and other TV. Everybody watched it. The biggest uh, non-combatant evacuation operation, certainly in American history, 122,000-plus Afghan uh, civilians, Afghan allies, SIV holders, special immigrant visa holders, folks who worked for us in the embassy, folks who worked with with, uh, folks like me and the you know, Afghan National Security Forces, we airlifted 122,000 over the course of about two weeks. Pretty impressive. And now on the backside, Operation Allies Welcome, as we settle them, resettle them with the partnership of the State Department and with uh, uh, Health and Human Services, HHS, and with us as the lead federal agency, the president chose DHS as the lead federal agency for Operation Allies Welcome to resettle 65,000 plus, so about half of the 122,000 who got evacuated out. Huge undertaking, and it's only going to work, and in fact it is working, but it's only going to work if this is not just a whole of government, but a whole of nation approach. And we've done that, DHS has done that really effectively with interagency cooperation and work with the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, especially for screening and vetting, HHS, in the Department of State, and many others. I want to follow up a little bit on the interagency cooperation. And it is an interesting dynamic as the mission and scope of the Department of Homeland Security expands beyond the domestic borders, how that will interplay with DOD and its mission and also its charges and how uh, in SS-202 we teach civil norms and civil relations. And so you have a standing officer corps that's being taught basic principles of how they should interact with political oversight and political leaders. And you've now occupied positions on both sides of the civ mill landscape. Uh, I was curious if uh, you could reflect a little on how your different experiences are going to shape your future decisions as the interagencies cooperate with one another. You know, one thing that I've seen uh, in the, and I've been back in government, so I did 24 years in the 
U.S. Army, three combat tours, I would say standard M1A1 sort of uh, armor approach, literally M1A1, Abrams tank was my platform, uh, and commanded that battalion in Telfer and Ramadi in Iraq in 2006-07. But then I leave for 10 years, go into uh, Citibank, go into financial services sector, which is a critical infrastructure sector, uh, as a COO, which I think was one of the reasons uh, the administration was interested in bringing me back on in this role as Deputy Secretary of Department of Homeland Security. And one, so when I've come back, now it's been five months since I've been back, right? So I don't pretend to be an expert in everything here. I think, you know, we as good leaders, especially if you want to be a good servant leader, yeah, you know, one of the first things you have to be is pretty self-aware of how much you know and how much you don't know. So I know there's a lot of things I still don't know and I'm learning. But one of the things that is, uh, I've been really excited to see is the where policy starts, where policy doesn't necessarily stop, but where there's a really clear line of demarcation between tactical execution, whether it's in the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Defense or Department of State or wherever else. There is a clear division and a really strong recognition, I think, within the interagency between uh, the political appointees and the career officials. For the Department of Defense, it's pretty clear. It's like Office of Secretary of Defense, policy, joint staff, career, right? Serving U.S. military officer and non-commissioned officers and enlisted, clear line of demarcation. You execute, policymakers make the policy, the uniformed services execute the policy, right? And as long as it's not in... As long as it is not immoral or illegal, we're going to, we in the old sense, you in the new sense, right, in the current sense, are going to go ex, uh, execute your policy. Same way at Department of Homeland Security as well. There are those who are the political appointees, myself, Ali Mayorkas, Rob Silvers, Jen Easterly, right, Undersecretary for Policy, head of uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. We're, gonna, we're going to make the policy. It is, it is the worldview of the Biden-Harrison administration, whether it's on climate change, cybersecurity, border security, travel security, you name it, we're going to make the policy. And we have been, very responsibly so. We believe in what we're doing. And then in terms of the execution, it's those great career officers uh, spread throughout the uh, organization, whether it's uh, career and customs border protection or Immigration uh, Customs Enforcement, or Homeland Security Investigation, or the Coast Guard, right, or CISA, they are executing the policy. So I've seen the good news here is I think it's really very clear, the as you called it, Civ Mill, but it's, I would say, political career, right? Uh, it's alive and well and being fully respected, I think, both by the politicals, by the folks who make policy, and by those who execute the policy. They're the great career officials, whether they're in uniform in the Department of Defense or they are uh, in other kind of uniforms in other parts of the interagency to include the Department of Homeland Security. It's interesting. You note that you're you're still on the, on the learning curve of things. You're still getting more and more information. Presumably some of that's coming from the careerists that are executing the policy as well. When you're potentially soliciting for that feedback, not saying that you are explicitly, but when that time comes that you would require additional information. Is it clearly communicated between the two that this is sort of a, we're soliciting general feedback here, or is it 
Um, are they aware that that's the time to be speaking versus the time to be executing? Yeah, I think in the, uh, at least in the Department of Homeland Security, so I've been doing some work with the Department of Defense, but I'm not within their policy uh, execution uh, apparatus at this moment. Certainly pretty adjacent to it, certainly on things that we're partnering on right now to include Operation Allies Welcome as we as we welcome these 65,000 Afghan guests and allies into our country and attempt to resettle them. Pretty adjacent to, fully integrated with the Department of Defense for sure. On the on the Department of Homeland Security, I can speak with some you know expertise on this because it's happening in real time, especially as I'm getting ready for uh, what we call the deputies committee process within the interagency. It is really the due diligence uh, process that all I think Americans would want, responsible, structured, thoughtful, uh, and also accounting for a whole of government approach, uh, making sure that, and it's a word that is pretty inside baseball, I think, uh, within the Washington, D.C. Certainly you two would know that from your American politics uh, experience and expertise of what they call department equities, department equities. This is the equity. I look at that and say, okay, this is great. It is representative of your core strength that you bring to uh, the policymaking uh, questions. And it is that same core strength that I see within our career officers who've been through this before, more than me. I have a, I certainly have the political policy perspective that comes from being the uh, second highest ranking political appointee in the Department of Homeland Security, but I need to have an understanding of the fundamental approach that we should consider taking, very normative, and that we have taken in the past. You know, what has been the precedence before? Because that's useful, right? And I think to do so otherwise would be uh, not just uh, benign neglect. It would be neglect of a uh, great asset that's out here. So when, you know, to your point, when I ask for uh, their feedback, their career feedback, I think they f absolutely understand that. And there's been times where we've uh, disagreed. Uh, I would say many, much more so. I rely on these great career uh, folks who have all this expertise, all this inf uh, history, all this institutional knowledge. And I think it's, it is really what makes the American – uh, democratic uh, experience so unique, but also um, so effective. One thing I kind of wonder is on the military side, there's been kind of increasing concerns about the politicization of the military, whether that be in the form of senior leaders saying things that are interpreted through a political lens, whether it be retired flag officers coming out and endorsing political candidates, or whether it be this idea that members of the DOD, particularly the military, um, you know, have partisan bias, um, you know, just debates to be had about, you know, how prevalent this is and how much of an issue it is. But, uh, you know, considering how you have the Coast Guard within the DHS, in addition to a number of other paramilitary and also law enforcement groups, is there similar concerns about politicization, you know, in the DHS? Oh, and, and uh, you know, I mean, the Army's answer to it is generally a professional military that's got a nonpartisan non tradition. Um, and are there similar kind of mechanisms for professionalization that are active within DHS? I mean, is there a comparison there to be made? Yeah, well, I think the clear apples-to-apples -apples comparison that you made uh, between the United States Coast Guard, who is, it's great, they are both a member of the military and the member of the Department of Homeland Security by law, actually. So they are full military service. They are as much, I think, a nonpartisan uh, professional military organization as uh, the United States Army, Semper Paratus, always ready. United States Army, this will defend. Uh, 
the United States Marine Corps, Semper Fi, always loyal, all of the same professional types of values and also all of the same kind of prescriptions and the way philosophical uh, guidelines about how they approach what they do. They are executing the policy in, in, their, in support of whatever the political appointees and the policymakers are making. They're executing the policy. If it's the Coast Guard uh, on our shores in terms of counter-drug, uh, cyber in the maritime space, in the Arctic, uh, the United States Coast Guard does it with uh, duty, honor, and support of country 1,000%. I think very similarly so. You call them paramilitary. At the end of the day, they are uniform services. They are law enforcement. The Department of Homeland Security is the largest law enforcement uh, organization in America. Uh, we have uh, Customs and Border Protection. We have uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement. We have Transportation Security Agency. We have the United States uh, Secret Service, right? These are organizations who all have missions which are in direct support of that mission that I've said a couple of times now. With honor and integrity, we will support our people, our homeland, and our values. And I see all the, they are, you call them paramilitary, I call them law enforcement. That's what they're doing. They are securing, in some cases, our border, uh, but they are, we are nations of law. We are a nation of laws, and this is what they are doing. They are law enforcement executing the policy. There is clearly a political uh, policy-making apparatus that's led by uh, Ali Mayorkas and myself and others who were in the department who are political appointees and who make the policy. And just like the Coast Guard does and the United States Army does in support of that policy, they, they execute in a very similar fashion. I believe it is uh, nonpartisan. And what's most, most important is that they are doing in direct support of that mission that I've said more than a few times now. With honor and integrity, we will safeguard our people, our homeland, and our values. We'd love to keep talking for hours on end, but I know you've got a busy day still ahead here during your visit to West Point. Uh, so I'd like to end by asking a typical old grad question. So I'm sure you've had many memories of your time back at West Point, some that might be flowing back as you kind of walk through the halls or the fields here back on campus. But is there anything that has stuck out to you as new to West Point or perhaps anything that feels the same as when you were a cadet here? Yep. So uh, a few things. I could obviously talk about some old grad stories, uh, but I'll, I'll talk more about my exposure to just as I walked from Mahan Hall uh, over the Lincoln Hall, we took the long way around, and we walked uh, through on diagonal walk. It was great. Every time I'm on diagonal walk, I always think to myself, right before I step on diagonal walk, I literally, this little Pavlovian dog thing goes off in my head. It's like a bell that says, are you authorized, new cadet, to walk on diagonal walk? Because when I was uh, uh, both a new cadet and a plebe, you couldn't walk on diagonal walk. You couldn't take advantage of the shortcut. Why? It wasn't because it was some great privilege. It was teaching us that there were rules, that there was discipline, and that sometimes it is life is harder and that there's not always those choices. And I always just thought it was also a way to keep us um, uh, from gaining any of the freshman 15 that it's so prevalent at other civilian universities is when you're walking 120 uh, steps per minute, it's really hard to gain weight. Plus, there was never enough food. Uh, which maybe brings me to my first point. I'll be a little funny. 
which is over the course of the last three years, obviously for the last year and a half because of COVID-19, didn't come to West Point. So good to be back. I did notice that right next to Mahan Hall, where the cars can come up and stop, I think this is still true. They can get deliveries from Shades, from the, uh, from the Chinese restaurant, maybe even from McDonald's, Uber Eats, right? The food can come to them. And I kept thinking, wow, is this, there's no more mess hall? Like, I mean, where, how is this? And then I realized this is the additional food that they can order. And cadets are always hungry. They should be, right? They're 18 to 22 years of age. They're doing APFTs and IOCTs probably every other day, it feels like. So it's super. We're running them really hard. They deserve the calories. I don't begrudge them the calories. But uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a cadet, the only place that you could get food after hours, to include if you were a firstie, was uh, a place called Mama Bravo's. It doesn't even exist. It was a pizza place at the bottom of Ninager Hall. So I'm not saying that the core has completely. Uh, I'm really happy that they have these other ways. So that's sort of the funny. Uh, it's the one funny thing is, is that Uber Eats has, uh, in, the, in the gig economy has uh, certainly caught up with West Point, and it's alive and well. And so I'm very glad the cadets have other places they can get food for and that they weren't starving like I was when I was a cadet. Um, that's sort of the funny uh, thing that I noticed. The other thing I noticed is I walked diagonal walk, and we took the long way around from Mahan over to Lincoln Hall here in, so, in the social department, the English department, and OEMA, I think, are here as well, uh, is I passed by Ulysses S. Grant statue. And I thought this was a long time in coming. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, our union general, uh, the first uh, West Point graduate to become uh, president of the United States, and I really think stood for all the right values. Obviously, a, a, a great soldier who led the uh, North to what was a moral and uh, much needed strategic victory, not just for the Union Army, but for the United States of America and for our republic. Uh, and for him to be honored, not just with a statue finally, but with a statue located in such a strategic position uh, across from the flagpole next to almost adjacent to Trophy Point, uh, and overlooking the core of cadets. To me, that really signals uh, the right kind of representation for the leaders who we should be looking up forward to, uh, looking up to here in the 21st century at the United States, uh, States Military Academy, our alma mater, West Point. No, absolutely. No, and it's and it's a really nice statue too. I mean, I, I I it was not up when I was a cadet. So, you know, when I came back as faculty it was the first time I saw it. And I remember it leaving quite an impression on me as well. But um, you know, sir, just thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and sharing your wisdom and your insights with all of us. Uh, you know, hopefully you enjoy the rest of your stay here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for your service, both of you. Take care. And that about wraps up this episode of the Soch Podcast. Thank you to Deputy Secretary Tian for spending time with us, the cadets, and members of the Soch faculty during his visit to West Point. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to leave a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast. We've got a series of exciting episodes coming out over the next few weeks, so please stay tuned. If you'd like to reach out to the podcast team with any comments, critiques, or suggestions, please send them to sochresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. We love to hear back from our listeners and are always looking for new episode ideas. Soch Podcast is produced, edited, and recorded by faculty members of the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. However... 
The views expressed on this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. As always, thanks again to the West Point Band for letting us use their awesome music. This is Major Haziano signing off.